you kind of want to be in a band with people that you have some connection with and, and whether they can play or not. In fact, if they can't play, I now think that's a, a singular benefit um, because the starting point is, you know, have you got something to say? Hi, this is Lowell Tolhurst, co-founder of The Cure. And this is Budgie co-founder of The Creatures, drummer with The Slits, and Susie and the Banshees. Welcome to Curious Creatures. Life after punk. You may think you know the territory, but we, we drew, drew the map. Now is the time to introduce to you a man of charm, intelligence, and rare eloquence. Ooh. He is the archetypical post-punk bass player. Ooh. He is the all-dancing quintessential bass player of the original Cure. Pray silence, please. Introducing another curious creature, Monsieur Michael Dempsey. So, um, Michael... Cast your mind back. When was the first time you and I met? We met in middle, what was middle school, Notre Dame Middle School. Uh, I remember him. I remember him vividly in the playground because I knew absolutely nobody. I'd come from miles away um, because my parents thought the Catholic school would be better than any of the other dreadful schools that were on offer. Um, so fate took me to Notre Dame. And I remember Lawrence because... <laughs> He had a very distinctive hairstyle. Let's put it that way. We all did, but he was more than any. Yeah, um, I'm sure there's some. Photos. Yeah, my mother had done it. That's why. Because in those days, if you didn't know how to cut hair, you put a pudding bowl. Don't know why a pudding bowl, but probably because it was big enough over somebody's head, and you just sort of cut around the anything that protruded outside the extent of the pudding bowl. Yeah. So I looked like a sort of you know strange monk. And we, I think we we liked each other because I. We were kind of misfits in, in those schools. If you weren't mainstream, studious, or a thug, then you sort of were in between with no fixed abode, really. And I think probably Lawrence wasn't a thug, despite the fact he tried to push that reputation in later years. <laughs> He's a gentle soul. More like a peaceful warrior. That's how I see myself. That's you how know. you've rewritten it. <laughs> What is history good for except to rewrite it? Um, yeah, that's pretty much my my memory. You know, in the in the playground at uh, Notre Dame, surrounded by lots of nuns, including uh, the the headmistress, the principal, Sister Kathleen Bully. I remember her very vividly. Yeah, was it with her piranhas? It was a progressive school, and in, in the, they had this brilliant idea that you'd have four classrooms in one room, and they didn't even have dividers really. So you had four different lessons going on in one space. And the, the nuns who, who seemed to be prominent in the school, but all these nuns had a, around their neck their crucifix and also that sort of guitar thing that you, you can hook onto an acoustic, you know? Was it, was it a good uh, a breeding ground for misfits? Yes, I think so. Well, Robert was there as well. You know, you're in your early teens and um, you begin to think that the uh, the way you've been told things are maybe isn't. So uh, I think that that was a definite area for for people to to ask questions, and um, that's what we were doing. Michael, wh why do you think you 
and Lol and Robert became such close friends. We, we didn't really fit in, I think. You know, a lot of friendships are, are based on that. Yeah. You can't really say we all like the same thing because we didn't, but we all knew that we weren't, we all knew what we didn't like. <laughs> yeah. And the areas where we, where we weren't comfortable. Yeah. We weren't academic. We weren't particularly studious, not that many people were. And we weren't tough kids um, who were in for a fight all the time. We, we were just different to, to, to the, the majority of people I felt who were there. But maybe that's a teenage thing. Everyone thinks they're different. That's right. We were different, but we were kind of different together. We, we kind of gravitated to each other because we, we saw some similarities in the things that we did like you know so we really like music yeah. so that was one similarity well, it would have been things like t-rex wouldn't it yeah absolutely um, it was the time of electric warrior i remember taking my copy of electric warrior to school and i think robert may have had a copy as well and perhaps you had a copy you know it was something that you wore a badge that said i belong to this this society yeah and so you would congregate on that basis usually what what you did back then was was you had a big great coat that you got from uh, some army surplus store and underneath it you carried several <laughs> yes. LPs that you would just sort of flash you know to the people that knew you know in the playground and they would go oh good one right great the great thing about the whole town of Crawley was it was and this was the 70s too so it wasn't just Crawley it was enveloped in this great miasma of apathy <laughs> so nobody was kind of interested or paying attention they weren't they weren't even angry that you were doing anything it, it was just disinterest mm. yeah indifference yeah. they were indifferent yeah. to us really we we were misfits we didn't fit in anywhere but we fit together mm. so what made you decide to form a group you, you kind of want to be in a band with people that you have some connection with and and whether they can play or not in fact if they can't play i, I now think that's a, a singular benefit um, because the starting point is you know, have you got something to say? Yeah. Yeah. I remember sitting on Three Bridges Station, <laughs> saying to Lawrence, you should join the band, yeah. but you need to buy a drum kit. So we'll go to Keyboard Harmony in Red Hill and uh, we'll fix it up with a drum kit. Yeah. He said to me, yeah, but the point is exams. You know, I've got these exams coming. I said, well, you can do those as well. He was, yeah. he was a bit more serious than I was when it came to academia. He wanted to get his chemistry yeah. A-level. I'm glad that you did say it to me. Otherwise, we wouldn't be sitting here today talking about this. Yeah, sorry about that. No. You're probably still regretting that now. <laughs> was there a little point when you took it away from the school and started to do it, you know, tried to find an, a way. I think that would have been in Robert's parents' house, wouldn't it? Um, yeah. But I don't, I don't remember it as being summer. Uh, just one moment. I remember it being continuous. You know, we, we were there a lot. <laughs> uh, right. We outstayed that well. Well, they, they had uh, the room that we, we sort of took over and practiced in. They, they were going to make this room for their parties and family get-togethers. But, one summer they they went away on the on a on a holiday on a vacation and we we just robert just said come round and we just stayed there for like two weeks and that would have been that had been a time i remember everything really gelling together because all we did was just play eat fish and chips go down to the fox revived or whatever it was called down at three bridges and then stagger back and play for another few hours and that would have been 76 i think yes 
1976. When it was particularly hot, yeah. No, I, I slept naked under the Persian rug, I remember that. But, Luckily, uh, I don't. Well, we had the Guru's record collection that we listened to a lot, I remember. Robert's brother, the, the Guru. We, we sat outside on the patio, and it was ridiculously hot, and I had those horrid pair of pink loons, you probably remember still, with the tie-dyed shirt, and, you know, tie-dyed shirt came off because it was summer, you know, so porcelain... Uh, porcelain skin and we would sit there with a little record player outside listening to all these uh, records that the guru had this sounds like an intense period of formative activity uh, this is the cures kind of 1976 outlier moment correct i'm not i can't really remember anything other than it seemed like a good thing to do with your friends mm. it was just something you did and enjoyed yeah and and the the kind of more we did it we did it we rehearsed quite a lot but it was more of a social thing as well. Um, and I think we probably got together yeah. two or three times a week um, for a long time. Yeah, at least, at least three times a week for about three years. It wasn't like anything happened from day one, but we just gradually developed. Then we got um, we, we we got a little local notoriety, and we managed to play at Knobstock. You remember that? You remember Knobstock? No, I remember that was the time that we just finished Boys Don't Cry because we we rehearsed it in yes. the morning. We rehearsed our set in the morning, we were quite conscientious, and then we turned up in the afternoon to this golf course, wasn't it, next to the pub? Yeah, <laughs> and played our set amongst for about how many people were there? Ten or twenty people. So so. Boys Don't Cry was a turning point of something. Yeah, I think I, I remember rehearsing that, just finishing it off and thinking, ah, oh, this is, oh. we've really suddenly achieved something rather good. What happened then after you'd kind of realised this, this, was, this was a bit different today? Well, we realised we had something and then, you know, you have to get a deal, that awful thing where you, if you haven't got a deal, you're <laughs> nobody. And so we had to try and get a deal. So, around about this time, many record companies were desperately seeking the next Johnny Rotten or Billy Idol. The Young Cure were courted by German pop label, Hansa. They'd seen a picture of us. We sent them a tape and a picture, but I think the tape arrived after the picture. They saw the, <laughs> they saw the picture and they, saw, they asked us to come up on that basis. Yeah. And then they videoed us. Yeah. And I don't think we performed at all. We just kind of mimed something. No. And they signed us. Yeah. Yeah, I can't remember what the terms of the deal were, but I don't suppose anybody read it. I think Robert got his father's legal department at, at Upjohn Pharmaceuticals to maybe run an eye over it, but he probably wasn't very well versed in media law, so I doubt if he could give <laughs> yeah. a very strong opinion. <laughs> yeah, as I recall, he, he said something to the effect of, uh, yes, it's a contract. <laughs> and that, that was it. That was it. <laughs> They're like, is it any good? Well, it's a contract. So you signed the Hansa deal? We did sign the Hansa deal, yeah. yeah I, were, I remember us saying to them, so you liked our, you liked our songs, you know, but they were songs, what songs? You know, you know they, they, re they, they really thought we would be like an, the next boy band. That's what they were after. But they, they didn't like any of our material. They, they sent all sorts of producers down to Crawley who obviously hated every minute of it. <laughs> and so they, they came to the conclusion that we had to do a cover version. And the cover version they chose for us was I Fought the Law and the Law Won. Yeah, which the Clash horribly did later on, you know, and we turned it down on the basis of how could anybody want to do this? Yeah, 
1977. The Clash did. Yeah. Um, so we turned down that particular one. Did you part amicably with Hansa? <laughs> How long did it take? I don't know. Robert pulled off a masterful stroke there because we we took away several decent songs from that, didn't we? I mean, we probably it was a it's one of those hideous deals where you know it's worth a hundred thousand pounds, but only if you stay with them for the next twenty five years. And, and <laughs> but I think we got out after a year uh, because they just were so exasperated with us. They couldn't see that we were serious in their eyes. We didn't want to be rock and roll stars, which was the the advert that they put on the back of the melody maker. They had these girls draped over a large motorcycle saying, do you want to be a rock and roll star? Yeah. Yeah. I guess we should have <coughs> suspected that it wasn't going to work. Yeah, we should have known. But we didn't. It was that desperate thirst for the deal. You were nobody if you didn't have a deal, which is probably still how it is. Right. And, and, and having a deal validates you. It means that somebody thinks you're worth backing. So you left Hansa with these, like, uh, I presume, nice studio recordings with various producers. Well, they weren't all that great, were they, Lawrence? No. And they weren't our choice of material. So I think very quickly we, we went and did another demo. That was when we went off to Chestnut Studios, wasn't it? Yeah, because that's when um, we, we used to hang out at uh, the, the local record store, Radio Rentals, or was it Radio Rentals, in, yes. in Hawley. And Rick Gallup. Simon Gallup's brother and Simon Gallup later became the bassist for The Cure used to work there on Saturdays and he would bring down all these records from London he would go up to you know town and get all these records and bring them down and we would sit there listen to him and he'd see us sitting around there looking a bit miserable and woe be gone after we'd finished with Hansa and he said I'll I'll give you 50 pounds and you go and make a demo and uh, that's what we did yeah that was Simon's brother you know, he's high in the pantheon of uh, of uh, beneficiary stars because he he gave us, he not only lent us, he gave us 50 quid to go make a demo. Yeah. Well, 50 quid was a lot of money in those days. That's a huge amount of money. Not sure even one of us would have risked 50 quid on the band. Yes. I don't think we ever paid him back either, did we? That was two weeks' wages. Yeah. At least. In a provincial record store, it's probably two months' wages. <laughs> and so we, we went and recorded that. I think we recorded four tracks, didn't we? And then Robert sent them off. Because we were working, so Robert had a bit more time at his yeah. disposal. So, and, and so what were your day jobs at this point? What was I working? I may have been working at the, the asylum by then. I was a porter in a, in a lunatic asylum. Yeah. In the hospital, yeah. yeah. And Lawrence was a serious chemist, though. Yeah. He was... Both these pursuits seem to be good training for the cure, actually. Right, yes, yeah. yeah. Chemistry and madness, yeah. Yes. But Robert took it upon himself to send out, uh, reproduce cassette tapes, um, and he sent them out. I remember him sending it out with a tea bag and a digestive biscuit to all the um, record labels we could find in whatever publication at the time. Yeah. And they all sent back rejection letters, Virgin, EMI, yeah. every one of them. Apart from Polydor, well, yeah. something came back on Polydor headed paper from Chris Perry, who said, "Yeah, it sounds interesting. Uh, come up and meet me. Come up and see me, boys." <laughs> So we got very excited at that and we drove up to London and we got there and met him. And the only disappointment there was actually said, well, it's not Polydor. It's, it's, a, it's a label that I'm going to form myself. It's Fiction Records. Uh, I'm leaving Polydor. So yeah. I think that was 
a moment of, oh dear, this is not quite as good as we thought it was. But we kind of liked him. He, he, he didn't take himself seriously like so many people seem to do. Uh, he was affable. He liked drinking beer at lunchtime. You know, what's not to like? That endeared him to you. Chris Perry was sort of the antithesis of the music business. Yes. So that kind of fit in with our way of looking at things as well. I suspect Chris did take himself seriously, but he just wasn't very good at <laughs> projecting <laughs> the image of someone taking themselves seriously. <laughs> but I don't remember us being full of self-importance or, th or thinking that we were better than anyone else. It's, we were just doing what we did. We, I think we set ourselves these little goals. So we played the local pub and then we, because there was nowhere else to play, we would hire village halls and make our own events. And then the next place to play was in London. So we had to find a, a way of doing that. Yeah, Perry was in instrumental in that. We got our first um, show in London at the Windsor Castle. The new Windsor Castle. The new Windsor Castle, yeah. yeah. Heaven knows what the old Windsor Castle was like. But yeah, it's a terrible old pub in the middle of nowhere in, in uh, the outskirts of London. But it was London. Mm. We played. Again, again, coming from the suburbs, that was a kind of badge of honour. We had a a label interest and we'd played in London. But it must be some point when the ambition kicks in. There's a little bit of somebody's got to be driving somewhere. Yeah, right. Fairly obviously, Robert was the driving force and, and obviously still is. But I think that was also kind of down to personalities as well. And, and hmm. uh, it wasn't, you know, we didn't have meetings or anything like that. I just don't think at that time it, it, it was a subject of debate as to what to do next. It, it just always seemed an obvious hmm. next step. And once you'd achieve one thing, something else seemed to, f to follow that. Um, because gradually, I suppose, you were getting attention, albeit in an incredibly slow and minimal way. I think you're absolutely correct there, Michael. I think one of the reasons that we did succeed is because we didn't just aim ourselves at success. That wasn't what was really important to us. What was important was to do the next thing and to live our life that way, it seemed to me. I, I think the point where I thought, oh, this might have a future was when Parry said to us, well, I, I want you to be, you know, you can go professional. So, you know, you could stop your jobs uh, and I'll pay a little money into the uh, bank account and you can pay, I think, how much was it? Do you remember, Michael? I think it was £25 a week. Whoa. Hey, wow. that's, that, I'm, I'm pleased you said that because that's what I was getting from my manager probably about the same time. <laughs> so, oh, that, that, that would last me. Uh, I used to walk back from the, uh, the Barbican in London back to my rented place yeah. in Earl's Court. I, think, I was lucky if it, you know, if it lasted me that journey. So that was, I suppose that was quite a, a, a reason. It seemed like a reasonable gesture on his part to, to make us available all day, every day. Yeah. Um, but then, you know, shortly after offering us this, I remember him buying you know, a very expensive BMW car. Yes. And, you know, if we'd have been a bit more cynical, we'd have realised there's probably a lot more where that came from. From that point to the, where I met you, 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 you gentlemen, yeah. what was, how long was that from where we just stopped? We couldn't have been <sighs> 77 to 79, 79 right? Okay. So two years. Well, we'd yeah. made our first album and um, we were touring.
these bands that we supported, there was Generation X, uh, even the Banshees to some degree, but I never felt like being back in middle school. I didn't really feel part of the that. I wasn't associated in that way with any of these people. There was very little camaraderie um, <clears throat> with, with those bands. And we had, what, Joy Division supported us. And yeah. everyone was, was very insular and separated, um, not particularly curious. But I think that was largely a defense mechanism because yeah. you had to put on this carapace of um, being different um, from everybody else. And that was a characteristic of its time. Yeah. A disappointing one but there it was but to a certain extent we we were kind of isolated in the beginning anyway because we lived out mm. in the middle of the the sticks and you know we weren't a, a central london band so we weren't going to go down to the pub and and rub shoulders with you know joe strummer or whatever it wasn't it wasn't going to be like that so we were like a self-contained unit and i think robert always kind of encouraged that anyway agreed which actually probably was it's saving grace because we didn't copy a lot of things we didn't jump on the next bandwagon that was coming along so guys what was cure music i think from middle school to today you know it's the cure in in terms of an ethos is still recognizable not really like anybody else right um and it's not in an intentional we're different it's just that we never really felt massively comfortable in anybody's company <laughs> or a deficiency than than anything but it's just the way it was um, yeah. you know we weren't a rock band we weren't a punk band no way were we a punk band we weren't kind of a new wave band when that was the, the thing that you might be or post wave or whatever we weren't really any of these things and and i think yeah. for a long time that was actually perceived as a bit of a problem by by all sorts of people. Yeah. Because yeah. if you didn't have a, yeah. a nice area to be categorized in, then there were plenty of others who did. So they would take center stage. Mm. But in the end, I think that worked hugely to Robert's advantage. And, and you know, he, he didn't he didn't plan it that way, but it was just, you know, again, it's a very strong part of his character. He's, he doesn't care. He doesn't care about what other people think. From day one, you know, he had a very certain um, view of himself and, and that right. you know allowed him not to be taken down these these false paths that a lot of other people did go down. Mm. Yeah, it's true. But we have we have sidestepped when we met Budgie. So let's yes. let's move back to that. Yeah, a turning point in all our lives. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the Banshees tour collapsed because those the guitar player and the drummer whose names I'm afraid I can't remember. It's, um, yeah, they're, they're etched into my my memory indelibly. I'm afraid, uh, Kenny Morris. Yes, that's it. And John John Mackay. Thank you. Yeah. Um, and they just walked out for, for reasons that were never entirely made clear to us. In Was that Aberdeen, Lawrence? Yes, it was. Aberdeen, Aberdeen yeah. yeah. Which was right at the beginning of the tour. I think we played one date when this was the second or the third. Yeah, yeah. We'd played in Belfast beforehand, and then we came over and played in Aberdeen. And after we'd played our set that night, we got the unfortunate news that half of the Banshees had just disappeared. Sue and Severin went out on stage and announced to 2,000 very upset Scots people that they wouldn't be able to play that night. Yeah, and after that, we thought it was all over with the, with the Banshees tour, didn't we? Yeah, we just, I remember we just went back to the hotel in Aberdeen and just got, you know, gloriously drunk and stuff because it's like, okay, well, that's it. That's, you know, that's the end of the tour. We're going home. Well, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get the story about Margaret Thatcher out. 
A brief introduction to Margaret Thatcher, a divisive political figure, passionately loved and hated in equal measure. She was the first woman prime minister, first prime minister with a science degree, but she was no feminist. A friend of Ronald Reagan, she was Queen Bee. Indifferent to the personal hardships of ordinary people, she treated us as drones. We had played in Belfast and we were coming over on the ferry. And when we got to Aberdeen, the hotel we were staying at was surrounded by police and stuff and we didn't really know what was going on somebody said oh margaret thatcher and the conservative party are staying here tonight and so they motioned for us to go to the back of this car park and of course we'd we'd been drinking as we were coming in so you know bladders were full and i distinctly remember getting out and thinking i'm shit i'm just going to have a pee here behind the hedge (laughs) and as i was peeing there was these little red dots appearing beside me because (laughs) the sharpshooters were on the roof of the hotel looking at who was this person and i was like oh my god no i'm not doing anything i'm just having to pee we got in the hotel and you know rock bands have the worst reputation about you know hotels and bars and trashing have to say without a shadow of a doubt, politicians 10 times worse. They were sort of dragging these these politicians out with their bow ties and, you know, suits akimbo all night long, and we were just sort of quietly sipping our halves of bitter in the corner. You know. So I do remember that. Yeah, I think uh, some of that might be a little fanciful, Lawrence, but... Uh... <laughs> The halves are bitter. The halves are bitter. You're, you're fine until you said the halves are bitter. Yes. Way off track. Probably a large Jameson's, if I remember, really, yeah. And then what happened? What happened the next morning? Do you remember? I think we must have gone home. No, we did. We went home because there was a discussion as to who the Banshee's guitar player would be, first of all. And it, and I think Robert, rather than the, the whole thing just fall apart, he volunteered to, to play the guitar. So then they, they'd replaced 50% of what they'd lost and they needed a drummer after that point, at which, at which moment, Budgie, you would have received that call. You see, I, my recollection was that, let me see, I, I went down for my little audition and then we were looking for guitarists because we had auditions. Because my little story, memory story is of yourself and Lol and Robert sitting with like, uh, scorecards like Eurovision Song Contest <laughs> as the guitarists were wheeled in and unceremoniously wheeled out again because they were too rocky or too banshee yeah. or too punky or too something and we ended up getting nowhere we was getting nowhere um so were you the drummer so at that point then you've been given I was a- I was sitting on the kit right. and I was there on the other wall where you, the, there was the cure okay. sitting on the floor cross-legged and I don't know what happened after that because we hadn't got a guitarist. And to me, it was a week. But obviously, it's not a week. It was two months. Yeah, I suppose it. But they got, they, so they got you first. So Robert hadn't decided straight away that he was going to do it. He, he must have been, well, the, the last choice hmm. because everyone else had been rejected. I remember the first date with Robert playing because Robert had a lectern yes. from the, directly from the pulpit. So he, he asked for a lectern and he had all his scrawl, all these sheets of A4 with scrawled notes. And, and then the thing, Susie had a kind of fan. I had a fan blowing away. And the papers just <laughs> wafted into a glorious kind of spread all about. So, But he didn't move them. He just kind of wandered over to the next song and played wherever the paper was. 
<laughs> no concern. Yeah. Do you remember th those those shows with pleasure, Budgie? Wow, um, I stepped into a new world. Mm. I think I think I knew straight away this this wasn't going to be like a stroll in the park. Mm. This tour was still like a testing ground somehow. There was still a lot to be. I don't know. There was a lot of attitude around. It, it was a necessary kind of part of the time, wasn't it? <laughs> the audience, they, they were kind of appreciative, but there was always a, a critical undercurrent as well. That was my recollection. Well, I remember Robert, Robert traveled with, uh, with you guys for, for a while in, in yeah. the, the nice Mick Murphy Did he? bus. Uh, yeah. And me and Michael were dri driving in the little car behind, you know, I remember. Well, he came in the Austin Maxi. Yes, that's right. With the sound engineer. Yeah. How was that? So your school chump from middle school suddenly was in the star yeah. at the, 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 big, the big limo. And you were driving the Austin Austin Maxi. I mean, I don't think I don't think I don't remember us, us being too troubled at the time. It just seemed like another. We, we were very kind of unquestioning. It was just another. Okay, <laughs> this is what happens next. Yeah, it's just another another thing on on our list of things that had to happen. You know, it was a logistical thing. That that was the way it was sold to us anyway. Of course. Again, stupidly, we didn't ask any questions at the time. Yeah. Or we didn't canvas for a larger tour bus that we could all go on. No. Oh dear, how, how naive we were. Oh well, if only we'd known then what we know now. Yeah. So that tour finished. Yes. I lost sight. Of, I lost sight of you for a while. What went on? I think that might have been my last, my last live show was with the Banshees. Um, Did you leave at some point, Michael, or were were you uh, propositioned? <laughs> again, you know, there was never a, a sensible um, meeting convened or anything like that. It just sort of nothing happened. Nothing happened. And then I, <laughs> and Robert yeah. doesn't recall ringing me, but we had we had a long conversation on the phone. And he, he was, he was, right. and he wanted Simon to be in the band because he, he really got on well with Simon. Simon was a bass player, so you couldn't have two bass players. Uh, there was no hostility or anything like that. It was, uh, in fact, he said, you know, I'm, I'm not even interested in the name. You can have the name if you want. But also at the same time for me, Perry had signed this band called The Associates. Head honcho of Fiction Records, Chris Perry, had another band that he was nurturing on his new label. The Associates from Scotland, Billy McKenzie and Alan Rankin. So it wasn't like I didn't have anything to do, right. and he'd already got me to play for them before the yeah. uh, before I left the Cure. So you'd already started, if you like, moonlighting. Yeah, that's a revelation to me, Michael. I didn't know you actually played with Billy before you left the band. I did, oh. and I do remember like. foolishly saying to Robert, "They're really, really good." <laughs> <laughs> I think they were really, really good. So, Michael. You started recording with uh, Mike Hedges, who did yeah. the first Cure album, but you were working with the associates at Playground Studios? Yeah, we booked, we block booked the Playground as soon as we got an advance. We just put, well, we bought an expensive car, and <laughs> with what was left, we put block booked some um, 
Tell me about the expensive car. I want to we know. We bought a beautiful expensive. old Mercedes, a 63 Mercedes convertible. Mm. And I was the only one who could drive, so effectively it became my car. So, yeah, I liked being in the Associates. That was really something. Well, that was a big shift up from the Austin Maxi. We got a nice house in South Kensington, yeah. and, and suddenly, you know, life was very comfortable. Uh, a, a house for the, for, the, for the band? Yep, we got a band house. Suddenly, the, the, you were, the, the old gang yeah. had gone. They, you see, mm? yeah. they were very manipulative. Billy was a master manipulator, whereas you know, Robert was much had a much stronger work ethic, um, and he he realised what had to be done in order to to get somewhere. Mm. Billy was was more persuasive in other ways, and he was able to you know charm and, and cajole the record label into giving him what he wanted. Billy had that smile. He did. He had the beatific vision. Yeah, he was not, he was not somebody who um, had a good sense of economy though, because as soon as the record company gave him any money. It got spent on all kinds of things, right? Exactly. And and and, yeah. and the cure, we were we were in the black almost the, from day one, weren't we? We very quickly cleared any recording debt. So yeah. so that gave yeah. the cure license to pretty much do what they want. You couldn't have a label say, Well, you owe us half a million, so mm. do what we say you should do. The associates were exactly the opposite, you know. <laughs> yeah. uh, they spent all their money very, very, very quickly on cashmere jumpers and I've got to go. I've got to get a bit nerdy, Michael, because I've I've been dying to ask you, because I watched you a lot. I have I, I can mental picture of me behind the cure, watching you open, starting the evening off. You you always covered a lot of stage. You know you were kind of Did I? down. Yeah, you were bouncing around. That's the power of alcohol. Maybe it was there was yeah. It was always a big smile on your face, but. <laughs> You probably played more notes, certainly in the associates, than we have than we ever played. This your your way of playing that. Do you know how it started? It's probably trying to fill in the gaps. Um, you know, because in the cure we didn't really play very much, and and there wasn't much in in the way of melody. I suppose it wasn't a melodic line. Robert couldn't couldn't do both. Right. But in the associates, it was quite bass heavy as well. They, Billy was very hot on bass lines. You know, he liked his bass line to be a, an integral part of the of the melody, to kind of uh, maybe to bolster whatever it was he was singing. Well, after the Associates, then I mean, I don't want to breeze through the Associates. I I appeared on numerous television shows with Roxy Music. I, I loved it when you when you popped up. I just thought that's Michael. <laughs> it's like with a bow tie on yeah i went to roxy and when i first did it it was the kenny everett christmas show and we did uh, the midnight hour mm. that was pretty good that's a great video of me with a load of go-go dancers yeah yeah so that was pretty wild how stuff. wonderful yeah. oh my god um and then when they did avalon they did a big sort of tour of that once they'd recorded that and we sort of we went around around Europe staying in these most beautiful hotels because Ryan, Ryan tends to do things in style and that was a very yeah very interesting time for me on that note Michael it's been a pleasure and uh, look forward to seeing you again soon Arrivederci be well Arrivederci Arrivederci and you
Lol, it's that time of the show when we're going to answer some questions from the fans. It's Louis, Louis Caceres, okay, and um, this one's for you, Lol. What is the best Susan the Banshees concert you ever saw? All of them. Oh, you had to say that. (laughs) Yeah, well, I had to say it, but it's true because I saw the Banshees play as the opening act. We were the opening act. The Cure were the opening act for the Join Hands tour. So I watched every show on that tour uh, from the wings. I, I I learned a lot of stagecraft stuff that we didn't have before. I learned how you know Sue was very very good at uh, controlling the audience in a way that that you know you probably needed to with a lot of them, especially because she was a woman and it was like you know it's hard in in lots of ways. But she was very good at that, so I, I got a lot of respect for her out of that. And then. Um, I think I also learnt uh, about dramatic lighting, watching a lot of the the way you know the lights were were used in the show. So it was very interesting for me. There weren't a lot of people doing the same things as the the banshees, and so that was very good. And of course, I got to watch Budgie. So what, what did you uh, like? Come off, you come off. You finish uh, your set. Did you all like? Yeah. You must have all gone to we, the pub, right? Every, uh, yeah. Well, well, we came off, finished our set, then snuck into your dressing room and stole the beers. And no, we didn't do that. We would have known. And then we, we walked out known. onto the wings. You would have known. Yes, exactly. So then we went out on. To, no, we went to got some beer, and then sat in the wings and uh, watched. You know, with our chips and our beer. It was like a. It was like a TV show, really. <laughs> okay, I got a question for you, Budgie. What's the best Cure concert you ever saw? And, and just to warn you, it better be one that I was in. Yeah. <laughs> you see, now let me think. I Because I did see, of course, probably the first, would it have been the first time I saw The Cure would be when you were opening for the band I'd just joined on the Join Hands right. tour because I, I, I hadn't seen you before um but i did see the cure playing i think it was uh the lyceum in london oh yes i think were you would you have been playing opening with carnage visors and playing faith yeah that might actually that might have been the case. in that yes, case yes, that's yes. the one i saw because i loved i loved oh, okay. carnage visors i remember playing it in in the, on the in the bus, you know, and, and said, "No, please don't play that again." I just, and I loved it, um, and I was I was struck by how a did that you were um, you were on stage a long time, and it yeah, yeah. but also this, you had a set, you had these kind of like strange screens that kind of fold like ripple down, yes. and it, it was quite yes. hmm, a striking. I hadn't seen many striking sets at that point. <laughs> right, we got um, we got called in the in Sounds uh, magazine, music magazine. We that concert we got called the uh, Pink Floyd of New Wave. I would I wouldn't have said that, I, but <laughs> I, I I wasn't far from my mind. Yeah. In my youth, I saw Genesis at the Liverpool Empire, Peter Gabriel's Genesis, and um, they had a very similar right. kind of like squirrely bit, you know, down the back. But um, they right. moved more than you did, you know. Right. Yeah, we didn't move at all. 
you, you'd started <laughs> so, the static production already at this point. Yeah, we, we were pretty much rooted to where we stood. Curious Creatures is created and presented by Bol Tolhurst and Budgie. Producer, Joe Wong. Producer and audio designer, Dan Didier. Executive producer, Mark Cates. Associate producer, Sophie Spare. Social media, Margie Taylor. Art and logo design, Justin Thomas K. Music production, Jack Knife Lee. Curious Creatures is on the web, and you can access us at www.curiouscreaturespodcast.com. I love saying www.curiouscreaturespodcast.com. <laughs> and you can reach us on Instagram, Facebook, <laughs> at Curious Creatures Official, Twitter, at Cure Creatures. To find more of the best music podcasts, visit doubleelvis.com or follow at doubleelvis on Instagram and at doubleelvisfm on Twitter. Curious Creatures is a production of LXB LLC 2021.